Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, here with another exciting conversation episode. This episode is with Vanessa Stovall, who I know from Twitter and from the wonderful Sweet Bitter podcast. We both appeared on their year-end special recently, and I was so thrilled to get Vanessa on the show to talk all about hair in Greek myth or in classical myth generally, more broadly, all around the Mediterranean, the depictions and use of hair in art and stories and all these things that I would have never thought of just because it didn't stand out to me. And then, you know, as soon as somebody realizes it and mentions it to you and suddenly it's all you can see are these these ideas, these these ways that the 
ancient people utilized hair. Anyway, it's fascinating. I was so thrilled to have Vanessa on. Um, Just a note that we did record this episode quite a while back now, a couple of months. And so conveniently enough, we actually talked quite a bit about Iphigenia at Aulis, and I hadn't even been planning to do it on the show at that time. And now the timing of this just coincidentally happens for next week when we are finally covering that play. So honestly, just thrilled with the timing there. Unfortunately, the way we recorded, there is a little bit of city noise in the background, but I tried to minimize it as much as possible. The conversation wins out regardless. Vanessa and I also talked about colonialism. I feel like that was inherent in in this talk of hair and the way we see it now versus the way it was seen then. So we definitely dove into colonialist talk generally, which also leads me to another note about how this was recorded a couple of months ago. I do uh, go into the horrors of the Canadian residential school issues, but primarily what has come up in the past, you know, six months, the bodies of children that have been found on the grounds of old Canadian residential schools. So I did bring that up. Uh, I think it's really important. But of course, since I recorded this, many hundreds more bodies have been found. And I uh, recommend that you look into the horror that is that practice uh, in Canada, uh, because I think everybody should know about it. But for the most part, this episode is very lighthearted. We just kind of went on and on about all these topics. It was very freewheeling and and led one thing led to another many times. We even threw in at the end a bit of why Apollo deserves some of the hate I usually reserve for people like Zeus or Theseus. You know, Apollo wasn't great either, and I was excited that Vanessa wanted to talk about that. So please enjoy this incredible and utterly fascinating conversation about, amongst other things, hair in myth and art. And oh my gosh, so cool. Something I just truly would have never thought of. So I was very grateful to have Vanessa on. Conversations, the hairy world of myth and tragedy with Vanessa Stovall. Thank you so much, Vanessa, for talking with me today. Thank you for asking me to be on the podcast. Uh, it was nice, yeah, getting to know you through uh, Sweet Bitter and the fun Sappho folks. And yeah, I'm, I'm really glad we got the chance to connect and talk more. Good, me too. That's exactly what I was just going to say is like, I think I've had you, like I've seen you on, you know, the world, wonderful world, wonderful and dark world of classics Twitter <laughs> a lot. And so I've definitely like seen your name and all the great tweets a lot and then getting on Sweet Bitter, I was like, no, I definitely need to have her on my show. Mm-hmm. Um, we we had that really fun sort of like big group Sweet Bitter chat uh, for their final episode. And that mm-hmm. was great. We uh, I we got to watch you perform on The Liar a little bit, which was super cool. So that's kind of part of why you're here today. And then also a number of other things. 
it's going to be sort of a very freewheeling conversation to the listeners. We had like this long list of maybe things to talk about. <laughs> and I think that's like, that's some of the best. That's why I love these conversation episodes. The number one topic I think I'm most interested in to hear your thoughts because it's something you study is hair. Now, is it is it in Greek mythology or the, the classical world more historically? What's the story there? Oh, yes. Excellent question to kick things off, because uh, it's definitely evolved. Uh, I think I look at hair in different areas in antiquity that really interest me. I look. I first noticed it through iconography, so like looking at a lot of like North African, uh, especially Egyptian sort of iconography, uh, and just sort of like seeing the different types of hair that seem to matter a lot, uh, particularly textured hair. Uh, I'm very textured hair myself. And so I, I started becoming way more interested in sort of that representation. But then uh, Rome uh, was actually the big sort of like hair culture with um, all these like ridiculous hairstyles that sort oh of come God. out of these elite women. <laughs> yeah. And figuring out and like that's so much of how we date different uh, eras of the empire, especially the Flavian hairstyle. I was just going to yeah. say that's the one that comes to mind <laughs> immediately. <laughs> like I studied Roman history in, in school, but this was like almost 10 years ago. But still the number one I can think of is like, yeah, that Flavian hairstyle. Yeah. So big, so dramatic. Um, and I love it. Uh, I've actually had like a hairstyle yesterday where I just like, pulled the back half of my hair out and just like let the front half just sit. And I was like, Neo Flavian. I don't know. We're trying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very Flavian. Yeah. I like um, it. <laughs> and there has been um, some really fascinating, interesting research more recently, particularly uh, with Janet Stevens, who's actually on YouTube, if folks want to check her out. Mm. Um, she was a hairdresser, actually, who started working with a lot of like archaeologists to st- try and start to recreate a lot of the um, a lot of the Roman hairstyles. And one of the biggest sort of breakthroughs she made was that um, a lot of the uh, guesses sort of around Roman hairstyles of how elaborate they were is that they were wigs. Mm. But uh, Stevens proved actually through like sewing and sort of showing lots of different styles that actually, no, they were more along the lines of extensions or like these late women would sew in extra parts of hair to sort of their own because then, you know, you can take it down at night, sort of, it still has that more natural look than wigs do. And I've heard some like funny uh, stories about Stevens sort of presenting uh, her research at like especially some of the ivy leagues of her tales of leo these bald-headed professors of like roman uh history of just sort of being like you know like is this like even feasible and she's just like you have no experience like like how would you know um and and it's like of course you'd be biased towards wigs like you have no hair on your head like no but most people want to actually work with what they have to make it seem longer like it's that realism um and i found that was very um interesting to think through but then also just like the differences i think we're in such an interesting time right now historically where we can look at all these differences in hair cultures um sort of like jumping up against each other like uh for those uh who might not know uh i am black uh myself and so i have a lot of my experiences are with black hair cultures which are quite different from uh more straight hair cultures one might say and so that's a lot of where my interest, yeah, sort of like North African Rome. Uh, and then I eventually got to Greece uh, because I kept noticing some interesting patterns um, around hair that started popping up with myth. But actually, I'm going to, uh, before I get more depth into some of those patterns, I'm actually going to take a step back. As a mythologist, I, I wonder uh, if you have a similar thought that 
despite all of our efforts, you know, even as to just understand uh, ancient narratives, ancient storytellings, we still have favorites. Uh, we still have uh, not oh, yeah. favorites, <laughs> I might say, or figures that we just actively don't like mm-hmm. or sometimes mm-hmm. hate, <laughs> even as mythologists who are trying to remain unbiased. And I must say, as someone who studies myth, as someone who studies music, and now also study someone who studies hair, um, I have a deep-seated, I'm not sure if it will ever go away, hatred for Apollo, the god of, well, most of the arts, let's just say. Undeserved, I would argue. Yeah, quite, quite, he's an interesting figure, but <laughs> actually the first time I had a critique of him uh, was high school Latin, reading all of its metamorphosis. Um, mm. And the first metamorphosis in the entirety of the book is of the nymph Daphne into the laurel tree for mm-hmm. Apollo. And one of the first things Apollo says after he's been struck by the arrow uh, with Cupid, uh, from Cupid to fall in love with her, um, is that he's staring at her hair, uh, like mm-hmm. hanging down her neck and like how um, unadorned it is. And he says like, quid si comantor, which means like, what? Like if it were arranged. And he just starts like, you know, just thinking like, oh my gosh, like what if she had it in like a proper, like, you know, like elite woman hairstyle, like she was like my bride or like someone intended for me. And I'm just like, oh my, what's up with like Apollo, this like hairdresser dude who's just so, you know, irritated. But then at the end of the whole myth, you know, he talks about as Daphne's transforming, the last thing that transforms is her hair into the leaves, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and Apollo then sort of like smacks against her trunk and is just like, all right, like, if you will not be my woman, you will be my tree. And like, you know, your leaves are going to be like, you know, ever braided, like with my hair, with my bow and arrow, with my quiver, with all the winners of like all the festivals like around me. And so like, I, I was very tickled in high school just like man like i was like apollo has no game <laughs> look at him just you know saying all this like nerdy stuff uh but then you know after years of studying latin and uh you know going through grad school and stuff looking back i was like oh wait like this is such an interesting commentary on style and there's so much interesting commentary on style and things like that that happened throughout the metamorphosis and all of it's so big on style from like uh the art of loving to the you know ways of the cosmetic ways all these different texts that he writes but i was just like there's something so interesting of like casting apollo as like you know this sort of like hairdresser who like uh like impacts how like people style and like crown their heads because he does mm-hmm. because like the laurel becomes that um i in for apollo going forward and so uh i started just sort of like thinking through all the ways in which hair has a tendency to pop up in roman representations of myth especially but then i was also thinking how interesting that is sort of like casting a look back at greece and so much of uh uh, especially with Ovid, who's someone who's such a well-read uh, elite nobleman, who's like clearly read, you know, all these past tragedies, who references them um, in his Latin. I was like, what an interesting way to sort of like take a look back uh, at this figure of Apollo, Apollo the hairdresser. Like, what does that bring about um, of this idea of like the gods as stylists almost? Um, so I started turning to Greek tragedy and just trying to sort of see different examples of it. And luckily, I was actually um, 
composing music for a production of Iphigenia and Alice by Euripides, uh, where we get some interesting, very similar sort of ideas around Apollo in one of the songs. Um, in it, the chorus is sort of singing this prophecy about uh, the Trojan War that's going to happen after Agamemnon, the king of the Achaeans, is going to sacrifice his daughter so they can sail off, do the Trojan War, the whole shebang. Um, and in this song, they sing about how Cassandra is sort of there and like overtaken with prophetic, you know, Apollo's prophetic uh, breath <laughs> that he sort of breathes onto her. Um, and how when she does it, she shakes her hair back and forth and like the laurel leaves start growing up through her yellow hair. Ooh. Yeah. And then the song ends with a uh, sort of, this course predicting that all of the Trojan women are going to stand by their looms and like sing it. And they're like, you know, what man from some like foreign land is going to come and drag me away from my fatherland by my mm -hmm. hair. Um, and so this like very idea of like hair sort of being this strong link between female identity in ancient Greece, I started like picking apart more. Um, and there's so much interesting hair stuff that comes out of tragedy. Um, the Bacchae, <laughs> one of the most uh, famous, bloody, goriest plays. Uh, right in the middle, you know, when Pentheus has to dress up as a woman, you know, he asks, you know, Dionysus to be his hairdresser. And Dionysus talks about how, you know, he's going to grow his hair out longer. Um, and through even the text, we can realize, like, he's not talking about putting a wig on him. He's talking about this very, like, uh, interesting process where uh actually it's funny reading the footnotes because people are just like oh we guess like he means like his hair is going to grow or like things like this because like he's not like you know putting like a wig on top of him like it's clearly his hair and you know me still thinking through like the, the strange ovid lens i'm like what if it's extensions like what if like you know dionysus like obviously it's magic but you know he's like you know using his magic to magic in extra hair to like uh Pentheus uh, during these times. So that's just getting into some of the strange details that, yeah, especially a lot of the gods uh, have some interesting uh, relationships with hair, especially the hair of mortals. And I've been trying to uh, tease that apart a little bit more in my research. Good pun. Thank you. Tease it apart. Thank you. <laughs> I try. <laughs> <laughs> but that is so fascinating. And it's one of those things like I have never sat down and like thought to watch out for mentions of hair but the way you're mentioned you're you know you're talking about these like clearly there are so many and now I'm so fascinated that you know as soon as you think about something then now I'm gonna see it like in every mm -hmm. source all the time and I love that <laughs> yeah it's it's so the way it's like you hear you learn a word for the first time and then you hear it like 18 more times in the next week alone or something you know so now I'm going to be on the lookout for all of these mentions of hair. But it is such a, a fascinating thing. And I think with Dionysus, it it's probably particularly interesting. He's so often shown as having very long hair mm -hmm. in a way that like not a lot of the men are, you know, sort of adding to his very like fluid kind mm -hmm. of identity. So is does that come up very often or is that that is yeah, do you have any kind of thoughts on Dionysus and his his hair specifically? Oh, yeah. Actually, I don't know about Dionysus specifically. I mean, I would say, yes, definitely. Uh, his hair is such a strong part of his iconography. And the fact that it is seen as like womanly um, definitely mm -hmm. plays into a lot of his more gendered depictions, I think, too. Um, and is what I think a lot of scholars, you know, who work on more like trans and non-binary studies, um, especially in relation to theater, get really, really attracted to Dionysus as a figure. Um, mm. Yeah, definitely. I love a lot of the uh, non-binary Dionysus discourse that's been coming out in recent years. Me too. Yeah, I try to always focus mm -hmm. on that with him. Like, I don't have a lot of like, 
deep knowledge of it, but I'm still always going to bring it up. Mm-hmm. And like, mm-hmm. I kind of see him as very fluid if he's not straight, not like if he's not exclusively non-binary, he's definitely mm-hmm. fluid in a way that almost no other, you know, certainly no other like Olympian god or even other gods in general are, which I just love about him. But I do think it is mostly iconography that shows him with long hair. Like I can't mm-hmm. really think of much in the way of textual descriptions. Some of the, uh, I think some of the theater stuff, especially, yeah, he tends to have mm. longer hair. Maybe one of the hymns, too. I feel like mm. one of the hymns, the like, Homericans, the Dionysus, if I'm remembering correctly. But it's all spilled. I need to return to the Homericans. I'm not super familiar with the Dionysus mm-hmm. hymns. Like Hermes obviously has my heart, and I know Aphrodite's, one. right? Oh, oh my God. Hermes. Just Another perfect. reason to hate Apollo. He didn't even vent the liar. <laughs> just appropriate yeah, right? from his brother. <laughs> He's literally the god of musical appropriation. Like, he, uh, wow. Yes. Yeah. No, that's so true. I mean, yeah, Hermes mm-hmm. explicitly invents the liar in such a brilliant way. But anyway, hair. So, I mean, I think, I feel like basically, based on what you've done already, you can just keep talking about this in a (laughs) thrilling way so please feel free to but i am so curious about where the distinctions come in given the nature of the mediterranean Mm -hmm. and how deeply like diverse it was even though today people tend to just ignore that very logical fact that obviously it was Mm -hmm. um and so where kind of does hair come into that real thank you wow what a great question (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm just like, look at you setting up and framing things I like to discuss. This is amazing. But I think it's so important. Like, I think that's like, like I, I think any excuse to talk to somebody who who sees like that, uh, like evidence of it in in that specific way that I think hair would be so obviously one. Yeah. But I am always yeah, yeah. constantly trying to in like to throw that in lately of just the way that people think that Greece and Rome must have been super light skinned. Oh, where you're like, do you know where they lived? Like, do you know bro, where they traded the with? Do you, yeah. Like, <laughs> It just, <laughs> it's just like deeply like, no one illogical. Had air conditioning back then. What are y'all talking about? <laughs> like, yeah, no, it's um a whole other thing. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> there's so many ways to approach this. How do I want to start? Let's start in antiquity. There we go. Yeah, because I've actually been asked this by a few of my colleagues who are just like, "Why hair and not weaving?" Which I was like fascinating and excellent question because i actually build a lot of my uh stuff off of weaving discourse and i think it's where i started in that i think that hair specifically why it interested me as like a lens to look at myth through is a form of weaving on your body uh it's weaving that you feel uh and i realized like in a lot of me explaining about like hair and the feeling of hair specifically um because i was just like hair is something that you see and it's like definitely very sight vision related that sense it's like you know people don't get discriminated against for their hair because of the way it smells (laughs) like it's the way it looks (laughs) that people do it yeah but also hair uh is intensely connected to touch (laughs) And this is something as someone with extremely textured hair, I realized was a bit of a learning curve of understanding um, when I was trying to explain this, especially to some of uh, my professors when I was getting my master's um, at Columbia. They're just like, what do you mean hair and like touch and like feeling? And I'm just like, huh, right. (laughs) You've probably never had to like sit on the ground for like six hours straight while someone was like, 
doing excruciating feeling things to like the top of your head and then like you know at the end you know it, it's something that'll last for maybe a month tops before you have to go through that process all over again and i was like it's what <laughs> so i was like wait what do you mean like feeling is one of the main things that you have with your hair and i was having to like explain also what the feeling of having your head braided uh specifically felt like uh where i was just like yeah you have like you know when you go through the process of dealing with your hair especially very textured hair there's a detangling process there's process of sectioning things off of sort of like coming through things of then having, you know, I'm like, but at the end of it, what you have is every single strand that is connected, like in a cap around your brain, being pulled into a specific design and shape and pattern over and over again for years, like of your life. And so over time, it's like you learn and understand things both as person whose head is braided and as a person who can braid. That explicit knowledge that I speak from, though, I realized. Only folks with textured hair understand how that feels. And I realized that I was very, very biased, uh, sort of thinking about this, because uh, my mother's white. And so she was someone who's very uh, empathetic, especially to her daughter's hair journeys. But specifically, that knowledge um, is one that folks with textured hair of all different types tend to have. Um, and to bring things back to sort of how all this relates, why we're in this like weird situation we're in right now um we have to take everything back to like 15 16 1700s because wow did a lot of stuff happen <laughs> on a global scale that impacted <laughs> uh what we're still falling through and one of the uh things that was very popular during this time period was racial pseudoscience to sort of basically prove um that whiteness was the most superior form of beings and one of the guys who did a lot of uh biological taxonomy basically he did a lot of different more like biology of animals but then decided to dip his toe into uh racial science for a bit and he coined the terms uh leotrichus and ulotrichus uh, leotrichus means a smooth or straight haired whereas ulotrichus means uh woolly specifically like lamb or kinky haired and mm. he decided that you could break up uh, all, you know, 15 species of humans into these, like, two groups of, like, yeah, yeah. It, was, it got a lot. But as a difference, um, I was, I sort of, like, looked at those two sort of terms of thinking through smooth and kinkier hair, and I was like, huh, what are, like, the actual differences, like, between these two groups? But also, like, there has been so much impact in history in separating those two groups. Um, and mm. like, that's one of, I would say one of the biggest markers around uh, colorism in the black community is sort of like who has good hair, who has bad hair um, and sort of like thinking through these ways. And, you know, personally, I still use the term Ulotrichus, even though it was uh, coined by this one dude, mostly because uh, I am Hellenist. I speak Greek, so I can actually just go into antiquity and uh, say, here's precedence for this term that I can sort of ignore this other guy for. Um, so that's what I did with the Spartan poet Telesilla, who's this uh, fascinating figure that we only have a few fragments of hers. Is interesting. She's most known for, uh, she actually like led 
her city in a fight, <laughs> like in an army. Mm. They're being attacked. Oh, I should look this up. It's been a while since <laughs> I've like read of Telesilla. Uh, so everyone take this with a grain of salt. Yeah, there. Her city was being attacked, and it was only like women, the elderly, and children. And she basically armed everyone and was like, "We're gonna fight." And like the army like retreated because they're like, "Okay, we don't want to." They're like, "There's no way for us to win." Because it's like, if we win, we're then just like, "What?" We beat all the women and like children, all people, <laughs> and they're like, "If we lose, that's even worse." So like, I think we just need to retreat in this situation. That's fucking badass. Yeah. That's great. So, but she has this one tiny little fragment called Uluk uh, Ulokukini, uh, kinky locks or like kinky curls. And so I'm like, oh, nice. Like the same wooly of Ulo that's in there. I'm like, sweet. Mm-hmm. All right. I'll use Ulotricus in uh, Telesilla's name because that feels good for me. Mm-hmm. And it's like little things like that where I'm just like, wait, right. Like, why does Telesilla have like a fragment about like kinky curls? What was up with that? What was she discussing? Like, you know, I don't know. Um, and trying to think through, yeah, all of this types of differences in the past. Because we do live in a contemporary where uh, so much of Greece and Rome has been used to prove the basically excellence of some of the empires of the past. Hello, British Empire. You were the big mm-hmm. one. Like, especially, especially like, you know, colonizing countless countries, telling them their languages weren't good enough while they had to learn Latin and Greek. That did a lot of bad stuff for a while. But... Also, America, like, we really love being classics light out here. I don't know if folks notice, but, like, our whole, like, East Coast is just, like, this neoclassical hell of, like, mixed architecture. <laughs> like... <laughs> yeah, as a Canadian, I notice this, like, in uh, in America. I mean, we have our own problems because we just are a deeply horrific colonialized country where we committed and are committing genocide against Indigenous peoples on the regular And uh, specifically, you know, in the last few weeks, it's made international news. Thank God, because I think the whole world should be talking about what we did. But they found the grave of 215 children Mm -hmm. on a ex-residential school, like in my province. And, And then another hundred, I think, in Manitoba. And it's just horrifying and not enough people know what residential schools are so a real quick because i feel like i'm just going to take this opportunity to say it but when (laughs) thank you (laughs) but when canada was created uh on indigenous land that was stolen they uh the canadian government i.e the british and the catholic church set up schools where they kidnapped children of indigenous people to literally like beat the culture out of them there there's like quotes about how the purpose of these schools was to have the culture removed from them Mm -hmm. and often they died and so yeah you have these places where there's 215 children's graves some as young as three and nobody knows who they are what their names were who they were related to and it's just horrifying and the last one closed in the 1990s hence why Mm -hmm. it's not even history so anyway that's all to say yeah but this this way that like that these colonial like countries have co-opted Greece and Rome is this darker thing. Like we don't have all the neoclassical uh, <laughs> of architecture that the States does. I mean, we have some, but not half as much, mm-hmm. but it is such an interesting thing to see how that's happened and continues to happen in a way where if you look back, it's just not remotely accurate. Yeah. I think that ties into like your bigger point uh, about <laughs> why people don't think, in Rome like were giant multicultural centers like they were mostly because 
like specifically just Greece and Rome, those two, because people really take those two out of like Mm -hmm. this much larger Mediterranean network that was happening for thousands of years around them, Mm -hmm. is that those two were just so specifically used in uh, like ideological programs around colonialism. Like they were held up and elevated as the cultures, like Mm -hmm. the hallmarks of culture. Um, like this interesting tradition that we see of like you know hyper individualism from Greece then getting like taken rebranded and appropriated through Rome while leaving all the parts that they don't like behind and then you know that keeps happening over like centuries until you get like Britain eventually being like look like we are the chosen ones like because they colonized us thousands of years ago so clearly this is justification for why now and like you still see that going into the contemporary folks being like hey this thing that happened thousands of years ago this is exactly why we need to do these things right now in the contemporary like and you're just like um what who gets to decide who gets to do what over a thousand years ago yeah, I see. I mean, you've been seeing that, especially in the past two centuries, a lot as the world maps have been redrawn and countries have been given different names and territories, mostly controlled through Europe and America. And that's mm-hmm. really shitty of us. Um, but that's also why I think it's so imperative for folks to sort of take this look at Greece and Rome and be like, hey, like now is the time for us to go back and undo so much of the crap that happened or not even like undo because like it happened but to just be like hey i'm gonna ignore most of that like you know i'll acknowledge it like when people ask me to want to but actually there's so many other avenues around studying these subjects that i'm really really fascinated in and that's most of the reason why I chose hair sort of like as this lens. Um, I mean, even Janet Stevens, someone who I'm so inspired by, like who'd like revolutionized, you know, doing Roman hairstyling. I was like, oh, but dang, like most of your models are still like very Leotrichus and like so much Roman iconography. I'm like, I keep seeing all these different types of textured hair being added, being used. I'm like, so what is that? Why is that? Like, I want to understand. I want to know. I want to learn. And yeah, so that's part of the reason why I added hair to my studies. Is I was also just like, well, this interests me. Hopefully this is also a lens that would interest other folks who share my identity, who might be interested like in these topics who might not have even thought about in the past of like, oh yeah, like let me <laughs> look at hair in like ancient Greece and Rome and like North Africa and the Near East. But yeah, especially for me, I found it such a, useful way of thinking through what like I don't mean to get too philosophical but like (laughs) what why what and why is it that we do what we do (laughs) (laughs) that's not philosophical at all what are you talking about (laughs) I I genuinely feel like that's often why I study what I do especially with myth and uh, music because I'm just like well that's something humans keep liking (laughs) over and over it's like wild stories uh, to a good rhythm like Mm -hmm. that is something humans are just like yes like let us keep trying to like come back into these patterns i'm like maybe that's just how we encode information to each other over time and years and then hair for me was just a much more like material way of sort of centering in on that i guess like i'm just mostly thinking about like the head (laughs) around myth because i'm like oh the head can do so much it's the center of all the senses (laughs) you know it can speak like out these like you know all these ideas all these um 
tall tales, all these lies, like through myths, it can sing them out, uh, it can whistle, it can do all these different sort of sound production. Uh, but I'm also like, right, like your hair is then also like on top of your head. And that's so much like a part of, you know, who you are in different ways. And so I think there is sort of this like, almost like <laughs> embodied system I'm trying to think through of just like, okay, like you have like the brain, like with the hair, that's like a physical touch, like pattern to that versus like the throat and like the mouth and like issuing out sounds in different ways, like versus like all of your senses and like how those are like intaking things. So yeah, that's sort of like a snapshot. <laughs> it's like, hopefully I'll move past like the neck into the rest <laughs> of the body with myth one day. But I think I'm really focused on the head right now. No, but I mean, I think everyone's got their like, yeah, you got to have that focus. I, I'm so, I mean, this it's sort of changed recently as I get more and more, you know, people who are actually studying this stuff to come on the show and mm -hmm. teach me all of these things. Um, but I've just always been so specifically into the stories in a quite literal sense of like mm, the stories mm -hmm. themselves. And I don't often find myself going too deep into the, I suppose I do a little bit now. It's hard to say exactly what I mean, even with this, mm -hmm. but you know, I don't tend to analyze them too much. I mean, I do when it comes to like the feminism aspect, but I'm more analyzing the interpretation of them than I am analyzing mm, the stories mm -hmm. themselves. Yeah. Yes. And I, I, so it's like, I live for the stories, but then I do look at, you know, why the stories are the way they were because of who wrote them mm -hmm. or who, what mm -hmm. survived mm -hmm. or, mm -hmm. or who's interpreting it now and who, or who's translating it now. And so that's, but for me, it's still like, I'm never going to break down the individual story itself. I'm just mm -hmm. going to kind of come at how it got that way. Um, but it's, I don't even know quite how I got on that. But I do think it's just like one of those, I don't know. I think everyone's got their, like, the way that you come at classics in general or what part of it you connect with. Like, I only did my BA and it was so long ago now. Mm -hmm. So the thing that I long for is to be able to fully understand ancient Greek. No, no, no. I feel all of this. Like, <laughs> someone who's like, like, I'm like, I've been studying ancient Greek for like six years. And I, like, I'm still like like plotting my way through it it is a <laughs> language but no actually i think that really resonates i think especially folks who study myth and who like really get interested in it over time like go through different stages of sort of like almost like stages of development around like their ideas of myth um mm. and you definitely hit on like some like i remember like high school me like you know who had like read a little bit of joseph campbell was just like mm. i just need to find the true myth like the truth of the myth like that's what I need like you know dig yeah. through and find like the OG and like that's like my you know my way forward um and definitely like through studying uh, an undergrad and then eventually uh as I was like preparing to do a master's I like realized like how much like my ideas had changed even when I started my master's I'd like had like originally gone in being like I I think I want to study like mythography and like, you know, like the record keeping of myth um, mm -hmm. because I was so much more interested in uh, how myth could change because like, I don't know, finding the truth myths got really boring to me, like in the middle of college. So I was just like, wait, different cultures are going to go through like, you know, different, very similar and different things based on their environmental factors. So of course they're going to have like similar myths about nature <laughs> and things like that. And so instead I started like, being more interested in like okay like wait but like 
similar cultures will go through the same thing and then produce like vastly different myths around it so like the difference like that's way more interesting to me like why oh because of all these like sociocultural reasons or like you know just like timing based on like different migratory patterns and yeah definitely like picking out all the details around myth was something that really drew me <laughs> uh to keep studying it and to keep uh, getting into it and i wonder if you'll almost agree like i find myself just realizing like do we maybe perhaps like just study the like proto genre and like the origins of genre like especially more fun things like you know uh, superheroes horror sci-fi fantasy like i don't know like there's definitely been more fun research around sci-fi and fantasy in more mm. recent years but uh i i just feel like there's so much further we could take it of like all this like early genre that we like seem to be studying and such a better way to like I don't know talk about it to help get people mm. interested in it because there's so much like thematically I feel like that happens with myth that I love talking about more so than yeah as you said just like breaking down like you know like well this motif in this story versus this this I'm just like wait but we're birthing something much bigger aren't we yeah. I mean, I think I, yeah, I, I do that sort of unintentionally because I don't ever, I think being so far beyond or outside of the realm of academia, I don't ever think things too deeply. Like, I think, you know, I, <laughs> it's fine. Neither do academics. <laughs> yeah. Welcome but I mean, I just like, I, well, I think we all have our things that we think about that, mm. like to that level. And for me, and it's constantly evolving and changing, but it's all about like, okay, but why is the story this way? Like, and it, it always comes down to, well, it was written by men. Um, but, <laughs> and then I like to think about what the story might've been if we had other versions that weren't just the ones the men wrote down and then the other men decided were worthy of them copying down and then the further men decided those were, you know, <laughs> down the line. Um, but when it comes to like genre and things, I mean, I do that just because I have created this like, you know, a, a thing that's evolved so much in four years from this like simplistic kind of like, I'm going to tell you really basic mm -hmm. retellings of myths to like, I'm going to tell you a four year episode series on something that's like, you know, not remotely that long, or I'm going to break down all of these different bits and pieces or all these different versions. Mm -hmm. And, but when it comes to, I mean, still trying to develop something that is commercially accessible and like, not at all based, you know, it's for everyone is I always come at it thematically when, when I easily can. So like every October is spooky season and I'm going to find you like the most spooky horror based stories that I can possibly get out of. Yeah. It's myths because it's the best, mm -hmm. um, you know, and I think, I think it gives it, it gives me something fun to work towards as somebody who is just doing this every week for so many years but also you know it fits with what people kind of expect from a broad pop culture sense of I love spooky season of October so I'm just like this is a little bit for me of like finding a way to do this but I also think it's led me to find horror in other myths that aren't traditionally seen as that way because also I've been doing this so long you end up running out of things mm -hmm. so for instance like last year one of the episodes I did was on um Procne and Philomela mm -hmm. and the level of horror that is involved in a story like that that is traditionally not seen as horror but it is you know it's seen more as a tragedy but if you mm -hmm. think about mm -hmm. everything about it, it's not hard to get there mm -hmm. <laughs> no sorry you're excited. oh 
have a point about that. Also. Yeah, please. No, but I think that's basically it's just like, yeah, thematics and the genre, all of that. I think it all comes sort of naturally in Greek myth. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, the thing that I think like convinced me the most is actually tragedy. I think Greek tragedy operates a lot more like, uh, especially the horror film genre, uh, mm. than folks would like to admit. And part of me is mostly actually hammering this point because I'm just like, we are living in a golden era media right now because you know 10 years ago if you were like to talk about like genre around like superheroes like so 10 years ago was to remind those it's like maybe the first avengers movie had just come out but like superhero is a genre like sci-fi fantasy horror all these things used to be like not taken seriously um as Mm -hmm. genres but now we are living in a time where they are so i'm just like perfect all right now that now is the time great tragedy (laughs) time for us to reevaluate all of this i mean there's Uh, it is so the time to mm reevaluate all of that like yeah greek tragedy and greek myth especially in pop culture representation like we need a good one yeah that's like accurate in the best way because a really accurate one would be so like i say accurate not as somebody who just wants it to be pure because i'm a purist Mm -hmm. but accurate because accurate tragedy and myth are like begging to be interpreted in the technology and storytelling mm-hmm. we have now exactly yeah i want to see a back eye as a horror movie exactly i'm just like who isn't putting up <laughs> the back eye as a horror film yeah right like yeah i've seen productions of the back eye where i'm just like guys guys I'm like, this is horrific. Lean into, please, please. Uh. The man gets his head ripped off by his own mother. There's so much there. And she sings around with it for like a bit at the end. Like, come on, y'all. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.
Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's Full Regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melon. Melon Serum. This next generation serum has the power of melon leaf stem cell technology. It's melon leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty system for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com. also like in greek tragedy how myth gets deployed like it mm. makes me think of like horror as a genre and actually Procter and philomela are like some of the main uh like myths that will get like sung by like the chorus like during like certain uh rough mm. times and yet you get like this certain repertoire of myths that are like much more horrific especially around like god's punishing people in really unfair ways and things like that the choruses will sort of bring up again and again it's almost like these like musical motifs that they keep just sort of uh stinging and uh, when I was doing the uh, soundtrack for Iphigenia, like I kept going back to horror soundtracks and thinking through them being like, oh, right. Because it's like, you know, you want to bring in, like ramp up the anxiety with sounds in like certain parts. And so like, I guess the choral odes are helping to do that in different ways. And so I was trying to like then match it with my odes and like make them start getting them like more gloomy and spooky as they went on. Cause I was like, oh, right. Okay. I need to like help. <laughs> and uh, like, somehow like tease this out in like a more modern way i don't know mm -hmm. yeah so i'm uh i need to do more i'm still still at the beginning still a young scholar and so i need to do more research and going through but um i'm currently embarking on a project to write music for all of uh euripides's extant plays that we have for him uh so amazing yeah working on the bacchae and alcestis this summer um with some friends out in brooklyn I'm really excited. So I'm hoping to sort of tease out like a broader sort of like horror mythological like soundscape that like he tends to be called on, especially by Euripides since he uses myth mm -hmm. in so many weird ways. So yeah, I was, I was going to say Euripides specifically is so mm -hmm. like, he just lends himself so much more to that horror genre, yeah. you know, with yeah. Bacchae and Medea, Iphigenia Alice and Alcestis and all of these things where, I don't know. I mean, I'm just also like a Euripides pure, like lover. Like I will love him forever. Yeah, you know, yeah. I'm one of those people who will defend him being a feminist. Like I, I think I just, same. I think he's no, like, I mean, no, actually best, low right? key, same. I would. Um, Good. I mean, yeah. I mean, the other people, I, the, I feel like the arguments around him not being a feminist are based exclusively in things that Aristophanes said, which doesn't really seem fair. Exactly. And I'm just like, right? oh, because Aristophanes is the head feminist. Okay. Guys. Right. Like, like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Why does Aristophanes get to decide? Yeah, no. I know. Like, I think he's much more, like, chill with women than Greek society would normally be okay with. And that's why yeah. he gets made fun of it for a bit. Uh, but yeah. also, Arist or, uh, Euripides in general is just, like, a fascinating figure 
interesting with gender interesting also with music though uh, he definitely really revolutionized the greek stage uh musically and was like mm. sort of one of the big uh like bridges between like some of the more um uh traditional like theater style and then like this new thing called new music that was popping up at like the end of the fifth century start of the fourth uh plato famously hates new music <laughs> mostly because he's a conservative art critic more than anything he's just like why aren't things like the way they used to be i'm upset <laughs> and cranky um but uh so Euripides, yeah definitely does some like fascinating stuff with music in fact he's some of the only music notation that we still have uh from mm. antiquity uh we have some for uh Orestes. i think a little bit of the electra i think think iphigenia and alice there's also a fragment i need to double check that one it's in my email <laughs> but yeah so he he's he like does weird things with men does weird things mm-hmm. with music um does fascinating stuff with gender and like me just going through so many of his plays now like now that I've been thinking about it, I'm just like, oh my gosh, there's so much hair. I'm like, he just talks about hair so much, um, especially like around gods. Um, mm. And like, there's definitely like a lot of conventions around like gods and their hair that I'm like learning more from, especially uh, like oceanic gods um, are often like black or blue haired, uh, gold haired, often gets given to the muses, Eros, Aphrodite, like there's different colors for different gods, um, often like different uh, adjectives around their hair for different gods. So I'm trying to like tease out that broader system. And then like mm. the Euripides system, um, because he uses hair in such interesting ways. And I had so much fun writing music for it. But now I'm just like, all right, as I write more music and go through research time, time to sort of tease out what all of this means to keep yeah. relying on that pun. Yeah, <laughs> I it's a great one. That's really, I mean, it's so interesting. I can't wait to be reading all of these things again and then start noticing all of the hair. But Euripides in general, I just find him to be the most fascinating. I Like, I understand people love, you know, like Oedipus Tyrannos and seven against thebes and like yeah exactly that's the i mean i love I those other too. two but i just hate those plays really yeah i mean i don't have any problem with sophocles or aeschylus i just don't find them as exciting like mm. i just you know if i'm gonna like for instance for me like if i'm telling the story of a myth on this podcast that relates to a play you know i'm always going to go to the play because we have so much more of it in terms of like content um and then also it's interesting to look at what the play might have changed from a traditional myth. But separate from that, like I just always mm-hmm. rely on Euripides where possible. Mm-hmm. Like, so I, I told Antigone and seven against Thebes by via, via Venus. I like Phoenician women. Cause I was like, mm-hmm. no, I want to tell it via Jocasta and not this, like, you know, I think people are a little bit too obsessed with Antigone personally. I don't think she is like the queen of, <laughs> What does this face mean? Agree or disagree? Oh, I I mean, I love Antigone. And I'm like, people are too obsessed with her all the time. Yeah. Historically, Hegel. Like, yeah. I don't dislike her. I think she's important. But I think that people rely on her as this figure of, like, a strong woman in Greek myth mm. more than they need to. No. Like, I don't think she's the be-all and end-all of it. Oh, agreed. I would actually say she's not even my favorite Sophocles heroine. She's close second, but uh, no. Electra? Oh, of course. Nothing yeah. can out-talk Electra. That is Damn right. intense place. Uh, oh my god yes no i strongly agree i mean i only like i mean i think 
Euripides is now my favorite because of music. I've gone back and forth with all three. Uh, Sophocles, I really like for, what's the word? We'll use Melody's word. Shout out to Melody mm. Malke from Columbia. Sorority. <laughs> Sophoclean sorority is unmatched. Uh, just between Electra and Antigone, actually. Mm. Uh, the Antigone and Ismene sequence versus the uh, Electra and Chrysothemis sequences are some of the most probably the most act i was like reading them i had to be sure that sophocles had like two sisters because i was like really? oh this is almost identical to like me and my sister arguing <laughs> about things um and especially i need to go back yeah is men and antigone their conversation in front of creon is like still one of my favorite sequences mm. in uh greek tragedy because it's such a for me at least like i i wrote my uh master's thesis on antiquity so i'm like okay. i have a lot of yeah, feelings about that's where you're like ah too much i'm like true i was like Vanessa, you wrote your thesis and i was like well i just think <laughs> yeah it's not about her it's about people's reliance on her mm-hmm. as like the female figure in greek myth is my issue not with her itself no, or even no. sophocles as a playwright of her it makes it's sense about- yeah but no absolutely like just like I'm just like liberate Antigone. That's where I'm yeah. at. I'm just like free her, free her from I think the that's Western true. imagination. That's exactly what I mean. Any time to talk about tragedy, like it's, it's one of those things that that was a big part of where I started in, or where I found a connection. I think when I was doing my undergrad, we studied all the different interpretations of the Oresteia. So we only read Oresteia, and we read all of them yeah, from all yeah. three. Mm-hmm. And that alone is fascinating because you get these like, yeah, you get like all these different ways of understanding this ultimate story. And then if you also try to see what the myth is based around that, you still have no idea. Mm-hmm. And it's just, yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating thing, Greek tragedy in general, just looking at it from like a historical and storytelling like position. It's just utterly amazing. Yeah. My undergrad thesis was, uh, I wrote it on uh, Anne Carson's Oresteia, where she takes Ooh. one of each, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, I was like, using like classics, like, you know, like literary criticism and other stuff. I'm like, what can we learn from this? I'm like, what is this? I'm like, what does this teach us about like, it? and basically just being like, why, why is this a good idea? And like, by the end, I was like, oh, actually, I think it's a really good idea. I'm like, what a fascinating way to like introduce people to like these topics by like arranging them and all of this of showing how like such a story can change over a trilogy through three different mm. playwrights. We're, we're so lucky to have that as an example mm-hmm. of all three yeah. telling the same yeah. story, you know, mm-hmm. because obviously it happened in other cases. I don't know if it happened with all three, but it certainly happened with like at least two of them telling the same story, but we don't have them, mm-hmm. you know, like I think we probably, yeah. I'm sure we do for yeah, some Yeah, we have some but fragments. But de- not all three. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like of like Euripides' Antigone and like a few of right. the yeah, stuff, but... Yeah. Yeah. But to see them all telling the same story and not o- not just any story, mm-hmm. but the you know, that story yeah. of the return of Agamemnon, Agamemnon's murder, mm-hmm. Clytemnestra's murder, Orestes and Electra dealing with whatever happened in their version. It's just yeah, yeah I mean it's, it's so wild too with like um 
when we were doing Iphigenia, because that's, like, the last one we have of, like, all the, like, related to House of Atreus. Um, mm-hmm. Or at least that's the last, like, most extant from, like, that time period one that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, but chronologically, yeah, one of the yeah. first. Yeah, exactly. And But, like, when we were doing mm-hmm. the production, it's, like, there's so many things that are referenced where you're, like, oh, my God, right, because you're, like, referencing this past production with this one, with this one. But there's actually so much of Agamemnon that gets like mm. referenced in that play. I was just realizing like all of these like similar phrases that kept getting used. But also, oh my gosh, to hook it back to Apollo. Uh the both of them have like one of the most interesting uses of like the pion. So the pion's mm. like this like celebratory song. Uh actually I guess not always celebratory. Usually just expressing a big emotion, but often celebratory. Um song, usually sung to Apollo and usually sung by men. Um, so mm-hmm. we have a lot of like pions from like Pindar uh, and stuff. However, in uh, the Agamemnon, the chorus sings about how uh, Iphigenia used to sing pions at her father's banquet. So it's like, oh, interesting. It's like a female pion. Um, and, but then at the end of um, Iphigenia and Alice, as uh, Iphigenia singing her final sort of monody as she's about to go off and be sacrificed, uh, she calls upon uh, the chorus of young maiden. Uh, not maidens sorry they're newlyweds they're definitely mm, not opposite. maidens yeah no no they, <laughs> the opposite they literally <laughs> just ran away from their husbands to look at the hot soldiers on the beach like they say that respect for, yeah it's i'm like respect. go off ladies um but she yeah. calls on them to strike up a pion uh for artemis specifically um so it's like really reorients this uh like traditionally sung by men traditionally for apollo instead she's like yeah mm-hmm. women sing a pion for artemis uh his sister instead you know as she's going off to die and so i was like but i remember going through i was like pion i was like where have i seen that and i was like agamemnon oh my gosh Iphigenia sang pion and, I, huh. mm-hmm. and so like that's just like one tiny instance of like you know Euripides calling back to like all these other versions uh of this story that's been told already yeah. on the stage turning things on its head too right like he just he just played around with things in such a fascinating way and I mean, the the thing I love about him most is that he gave women a voice in like a brilliant way, you know, like and gave almost all of them a voice. Like, obviously, we have Antigone as somebody from Sophocles, but she's one of the few, you know, of like an exclusive, like a woman who has agency and a voice and like a character personality, I think is the key word. Like Euripides' women have personality, like as much as you can hate Medea for what she did, you have to love Medea in that play. She's incredible. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just such a fascinating thing. I have not read all of It's Gonna Add Alice, and I desperately want to because I've now had your, like, at least the second person who has come on the show and just, like, talked about it in a way that makes me go, like, why haven't you read this already? Oh, yo, <laughs> actually... Let me recommend the first way I uh, experienced it. And actually, I know quite mm. a few who also did too. And I might recommend this. Uh, the film. It's on YouTube. There was a like 1970 film uh, by, uh, mm. oh, I forgot his first name, Kakayanis. Um, Yeah, they, they just did this just like still set in antiquity. Uh, actually, <laughs> literally filmed in the ruins at Mykonos uh, 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 in CD. So it's so funny because... Um, like, I mean, they're ruins, so it's like, yeah. Iphigenia would be like, oh yeah, dad's calling me, like, let me come out of this, like, half-destroyed wall, like, <laughs> um, it's so much fun. But yeah, no, I watched it in one of, like, the first classes, classes I was in, in uh, college, and I was just like, whoa, what? I was like, what? 
what? Also, oh, I forgot. Oh, I'm blanking on her name. She was like a very famous Greek actress. She plays Clyde mm. Nestra. And she's oh, oh, so good. Um, so yeah, I would highly recommend. Yeah, watch it uh, on YouTube. And then if you yeah. feel like it, you, know, you can watch the Barnard Columbia production also on YouTube <laughs> with subtitles. Yeah, yeah, that's the one that you did recently, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, so just make sure you're fully promoted. We'll make that available. Appreciate it. We need to talk more about Apollo. So, yeah. so I mean, I think you know, as is the my way in this podcast, we'll we'll close up our conversation today by just talking a little bit about Apollo. Apollo is a person that I don't shit on enough because I just find myself somewhat indifferent to him, though I recognize that he is problematic. So I want to hear your thoughts. <laughs> Apollo, yeah. What is there to like about him? I mean, that's the thing. I think I've just found myself indifferent, but just yeah, because I just have no strong uh, opinions either way. Yeah, so my to take things all the way back, I kind of did. The first time I noticed uh, the hair thing uh, was in a much larger picture of just my third year high school Latin class, um, uh, absolutely clowning on Apollo uh, in the Metamorphosis because we were just like, man this dude has no game <laughs> like mm-hmm. he's just like i mean the, yeah in the bushes like you know he's just like like you know like there's a whole hair thing but then he's just like oh my god he sees her like lower forearms and then the uncovered part of her upper arm he's like and then the things that were covered he imagined them even better like it's just like ridiculous Ugh. he's just like the most like pathetic and like often how often portrays uh a lot of like the men especially a lot of the men who are like actively trying to like assault a lot of the women um in myths so like, like all of them like zeus does too like there's multiple times like in the metamorphosis when the men are like in the middle of saying their stuff and they're like why are you running from me wait like you know like let me chase like even as apollo the whole time he's just like here are my accomplishments like love me and she's just like <laughs> i don't care and like high school us we were just like some vicious 16 and 17 year olds who were just like this dude like god ah he is aggravating us so that was like always my kind of like intro (laughs) to apollo slash like baseline about him um like as like a kid i was way more interested like in myths of his sister because i was just like i want to be wild in the wood with animals too yeah um, I mean, she's a badass. Yeah, and Apollo, I was always just kind of like, yeah, he's boring. Um, but then, like, as I got older and just learned more about him and like how important he is, I'm always just like, no. <laughs> like, I always just like <laughs> strongly disagree. Um, and part of that has even helped. Uh, again, neoclassicism. Ah, just mm. like the iconography that will not stop giving and stuff and just like how much like went into everyone talking about like the apollo belvedere and how this is like the height of what like beauty must look like and everyone trying to copy it like going forward and i'm just like it's not even that good of a statue like, i'm like i don't care i don't know there are so many better statues to me that like embody the ancient imagination or whatever and then like yeah like actually starting to get more into like the greek and like latin like of the myths around apollo i'm just like what does he do (laughs) like he just kind of like it's like i am the head of things but like i don't actually manufacture or create them like you know with hermes and music uh he just sort of like appoints himself as the head of the muses where i'm just like well like they're the daughters of memory nemosine like why are we trying to push her out of the way for you apollo dude who stole the liar no that's so true 
he's just kind of like yeah he's just sort of the it, he just sort of like watches over the people that do the hard work yeah. or or like takes it on himself yeah like getting the liar from hermes becoming the god of the muses for no good reason becoming Delphi. the god of the oracle yeah. yeah exactly the oracle yeah he took over the oracle from a mother goddess like an yeah. earth mother goddess yeah. and it's like even in antiquity, like, uh, oh, to bring back to colonialism, there we go. Like, mm, colonial acts mm. were done in his name, uh, especially Delos, the, like, big main island where it's said that he's, like, born. Uh, basically, like, similar things that we see in our contemporary, like, you know, like, the Athenians were just like, all right, Delians, y'all have to get off the island because, like, it's going to be consecrated to the god now. So they just basically kicked all the Delians off, even going so far as to dig up all the graves of the... Oh, my yeah, God! so that it could be purified for the god Apollo and become his. Yeah, no, it happened. Um, so, That's horrifying. So, yeah, no, we see so, a lot of the stuff that, like, that we, like, hate that classics gets used for. I'm like, well, you know, and they did some of those things in antiquity. I'm like, it's just Mm -hmm. not all of that. I'm like, so, you know, as someone who hates colonialism in my contemporary, a lot of ancient myth is uh, talk, like, in and around colonialism. So I'm just like, hey, we have to tease that apart, too. And, like, for me personally, I'm just like, yeah, I don't like Apollo. (laughs) <laughs> like as figure yeah. not someone i'd like particularly like to study he also like i don't know quite a lot of the myth writers and songsters that i study in antiquity too also are not super hot on him either as like the head of music so i'm just like well like yeah as a head of music he's not really like i think about i don't know a ton of you know of those ancient songwriters and things mm-hmm. but like even you know Sappho doesn't spend a lot of time on him. No. He's not a priority at all, and she's one of the most famous. Yeah, she brings up and Pion more. Actually, I'm pretty sure. Interesting. Yeah. Well, and she. I mean, she has all her goddesses to sing to, and those things, right? It's like, yeah, he seems to have kind of appointed himself to everything as the son yeah. of Zeus. Where, oh. whereas, like, what did he earn? It's all just so damn fascinating. I feel like it's all endless. It is. I'm here to tell you it's endless. <laughs> right? I mean, I, I'm a perfect example of that. Like, I've been doing this for years. There's no way I'm ending anytime soon. And not only because it's how I pay my bills, mm-hmm. but also just because, like, it is endless. And I'm growing endlessly. And I'm meeting new people to, like, to learn more from and spread all this, like, super fascinating stuff. It's just constant. But, oh, my gosh, this was so much fun. Thank you so much for doing this. I yeah, love a freewheeling conversation of so many different things. Of course. Yeah, no, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, I'm so glad. Well, yeah, d- is there anything that you want to promote, share with my listeners? Sure. Uh, so I run uh, my own alternative classics blog publication on Medium called Corona Borealis, if folks want to check that out. Um, and my most recent work uh, has been for the Barnard Columbia Ancient Drama production of Iphigenia and Alice, directed by Elizabeth McNamara, which is up on YouTube for free uh, with English subtitles. Uh, the whole thing is in ancient Greek. And I did the music. Which is so cool. <laughs> yeah. That's so, that's all around so exciting. Like, I love that there's an ancient Greek production with music. It's so accurate and cool yeah check it out <laughs> and also check out their other barnard columbia ancient drama productions on youtube though the other ones are all filmed stage musicals whereas this was a little film we made since uh covid gave us the opportunity to do it for the first time mm-hmm. that's very cool i will put a link to that and uh your corona borealis which is a wonderful name in the description of this episode so everyone can find it thank you kindly happy to 
nerds, thank you all so much for listening. As I mentioned in that little bit with Vanessa, there are links to everything that she brought up in the episode's description. So there is a link to follow Vanessa on Twitter, uh, a link to her Corona Borealis Medium publication, and a link to that Columbia Barnard uh, performance of Iphigenia at Alice in Ancient Greek with English subtitles. So incredibly cool. So I highly recommend you check all of those things out. And I mean, the best coincidence of all time. Stay tuned next week for when I finally cover Iphigenia at Alice, my conversation with Vanessa, as well as my conversation with Amy Hines earlier this year have both led me to be just so excited to finally cover that play and the myth around it. Oh, thank you all. As always, I mean, just this is the best. Thank you for listening. You're all very cool. I am Liv and I love this shit. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Now I'd like to introduce you to Meaningful Beauty, the famed skincare brand created by iconic supermodel Cindy Crawford. It's her secret to absolutely gorgeous skin. Meaningful Beauty makes powerful and effective skincare simple, and it's loved by millions of women. It's formulated for all ages and all skin tones and types, and it's designed to work as a complete skincare system, leaving your skin feeling soft, smooth, and nourished. I recommend starting with Cindy's full regimen, which contains all five of her best-selling products, including the amazing Youth Activating Melon. Serum. This next generation serum has the power of melon leaf stem cell technology. It's melon leaf stem cells encapsulated for freshness and released onto the skin to support a visible reduction in the appearance of wrinkles. With thousands of glowing five-star reviews, why not give it a try? Subscribe today and you can get the amazing Meaningful Beauty system for just $49.95. That includes our introductory five-piece system, free gifts, free shipping, and a 60-day money-back guarantee. All of that available at MeaningfulBeauty.com.